0: Your local McDonald's owners across Washington, D.C., Greater Baltimore, and Eastern Shore
1: are committed community members who all celebrate the diversity of the neighborhoods that they serve. Black History Month is a special time to spotlight the many African-American and black individuals and organizations that have contributed to our area's growth and development. McDonald's sees, supports, and celebrates you now and all year long. This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. Hey, welcome to the Greg Scheinman Podcast. On my show today, we've got Billy Mann. Billy is one of America's most celebrated songwriters and producers, also a successful entrepreneur and philanthropist. Uh, Billy heads up the management firm Mancom, as well as Green and Bloom, a publishing company, and a creative company called The Colors You Like. Billy, welcome to the Greg Shaman Podcast. Thanks for being here today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Hey, look, I I really appreciate you doing this, knowing how how many... businesses, uh, and, and philanthropic efforts, efforts you're involved in, as well as your, your own family. Um, so I appreciate, first of all, your wife, Jenna, setting this up, uh, who I grew up with. Otherwise, I don't think I'm getting on your calendar <laughs> and your schedule. So let me first say thank you uh, about that. No, it's a, it's a pleasure, man. So so take, take me through a typical then Billy, Billy Man day. What's, what's your routine? How do, you, how do you start your days? What do you do?
0: Well, I'm a I'm an early riser, which is um, a kind of a terrible uh, start for most music people because I'm also a late night guy. Uh, um, but uh, but I'm an early riser. I, I I I enjoy the early mornings the best. Um, first off, I have little kids, um, so it's great quality time with them. But it's also uh, I like getting a jump on the day and getting caught up to speed on emails um, and the news but actually it's just a good time to not be attached to any technology for a minute and to think of and write down ideas and um, whether it's just work-related or creative ideas and to try to just with a clear head approach what the day looks like for me um, that's really step one um, and then i exercise i would say four days a week at a minimum so I just think if you can, whatever time people typically wake up, I would probably say try to get up an hour earlier so you can do those things. Um, it's, a, it's a great use of time. Um, and it's also a time to not be constantly reacting. I feel like most people tend to spend a lot of their time reacting to the emails they get or things that they are juggling or calls that they're getting instead of, having a moment to be proactive about what they want to do, um, before they get started.
1: Yeah. Great, great stuff. What do you typically do for, for fitness? What do you like to do?
0: Um, it's funny. I resisted, uh, weightlifting for a long time. I found it really boring. Uh, and I was a runner and, uh, I ran the New York marathon three times and I'm a really, I'm not a runner. I mean, just sort of physically, uh, I'm more the size of a offensive lineman for an n f l team uh, so uh it's not it's not i wasn't a i wasn't an elegant runner it was like a three legged rhinoceros type runner um but uh i I used to be into running, which is actually great because I travel quite a bit so you kind of you just bring your sneakers and go um and then as I got older and as I realized that being a you know a really large guy running for long distances, it wasn't very good for my knees, and I got into lifting weights, which is, frankly, just a lot better overall for health, and um, and so that's what I do. I, I tend to do high-interval training and uh, and uh, weightlifting.
1: Great. So, obviously, you've been super successful in, in the music industry, uh, and I definitely want to get into to your career in a number of different ways. But one thing that really jumped out at me in looking in your background was that the pursuit of the, and correct me if I get this, the pursuit of the hit life is more important than the pursuit of the hit song. You know, this really kind of jumped out and and struck a chord with me um, as an entrepreneur uh, in in a number of different businesses and as a father, husband, um, all of that. Explain this to me a bit, and kind of how you came to this realization, and and, and how you live your life.
0: Um, so, it's for me, it's probably the cornerstone of everything is the hit life. Um, for songwriters, and I think it, listen, I think it applies beyond songwriters. I think it applies to people that are, um, you know, that go to work at, at any business or anybody that's in finance or. Uh, real estate or venture capital or um school teachers or whatever we're we are our achievements i think that the way that society pushes people is towards big milestone moments um and i have seen a lot of people in the music industry get very very caught up on those milestone moments being their goals which in at a first glance, it's understandable. You want to write a number one song or you want to make your first million dollars or, or you want to get your... as soon as I get a house or I get a car or... But we really attach ourselves to these locations that are supposed to validate the work that we're doing. And a lot of songwriters focus on that moment, the hit song moment. And for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a, it's a great accomplishment. Two, there's nothing like the rush of hearing something you've written on the radio over and over again. Um, there's a great financial windfall that comes with it, and it's a moment of validation. But that moment of validation doesn't, most of the time, it doesn't really last for very long in the scheme mm-hmm. of a person's full life. And what can happen is when you, well, for starters, when you hit one of those milestones, there is an understandable human arrogance that goes into um, uh, play, which is that's going to last forever, and you're just going to keep repeating that. And hopefully, if you're somebody that's lucky enough to have a hit song, that's going to happen. But in all likelihood, and if you look statistically, the chances are it's not. Um, So I've witnessed a lot of people, a lot of really talented people who I love, either spend their lives in pursuit of that hit song moment, um, which I'd say if you're in finance or venture capital or or in business, it's sort of that big, I built a company, I sold it, whatever that Mm -hmm. big transaction is, only to find themselves on the other side of it still not fully fulfilled or looking for a happiness that isn't there. and. I just, in years of watching colleagues and friends and other people have moments of success, not just in music, but have that hit song moment, it doesn't ensure a larger, secure platform of happiness. And I realized that not only do I not know how many times I'm going to get that hit song moment, um I also realized that most people, even if they're lucky enough to have one, they only wind up with one. And I wanted my life to be rich, and I wanted it to be um, quality and defined as a quality life by more than that moment, that location, that time, and instead look at it more as a direction I want my life to go in, and to have more of a striving for the hit life instead of the hit song. And... Even though, even just as I'm saying it, there's a kind of oprah Winfreyishness about it i it's not something that I take lightly, and what I've used as a method to get there is really um, to have a, a list for myself, which I put together many years ago before I had reached a certain level of success that even would make me qualified to <laughs> to send this back to you on your show but is to choose directions that I wanted my life to go to, go towards, and then just go in that direction and believe that in the spirit of doing those things well, coupled with my ambition and hopefully some talent, that along the way there could be those milestone hit songish ish moments, um, but that it would never deter me from the larger life that I wanted. So instead of saying, as soon as I make... X amount of dollars, I'll be happy. I was, I would say, I really want a life that's going to be abundance for me, that gives me freedom and financial security. Or instead of saying, um, as soon as I, um, as soon as I, I don't know, I took my first trip to Europe, I would have a direction that said, I want to see as much of the world as I can. I want to work with people I love. I want to be passionate about the projects I'm on. And mm-hmm. those approaches, for me, has pro- it's provided me a much richer uh, life. And it's also, in a way, inoculated me personally from the cacophony of negativity that's around me, where people are constantly comparing themselves against other people's achievements or milestones or locations. And instead of saying, I'm keeping my eye on the ball, it's like I'm actually keeping my eye on the larger play, the larger experience. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that's a long um explanation, but that's really what it is is that we do get hung up on having this you know the big moment, the big transaction, the big song, mm-hmm. and if you go in knowing that the odds of that happening are pretty low in any industry, then you actually could set yourself up for being um, in a position where you feel like you're a failure, and I think that's sure. a totally mm-hmm. unfair burden to put on on yourself, too, uh, as a, you know, as a person trying to achieve.
1: Sure, it's about you're talking, the, the journey, not necessarily the destination. Uh, right. The right,
0: help. I mean, and, and it, but let, let's be clear, though. It doesn't mean that it, it takes away or dulls the sharpness of my ambition or my desire to compete, but what it does do is that it makes me less consumed by, the measuring stick that other people are setting, the timeline that other people impose. And instead, I'm just doing things, as long as I can do it and sustain my life and my family, I'm doing it you know, on the path that I'm meant to be taking as governed by the spirit and ambition of my own direction, not mm-hmm. measuring against you're supposed to buy X date or this is what success looks like. Is this plaque on your wall or this award or this sure. chart position?
1: Sure. And, and there's so much as we all know that that's out of our control. Also, you know, the aspects of being able to just let go and let certain things run and take their, take their course. Um, whether it's, it's musically, or as you were saying in, in any business, I feel that the, the difference in a way sometimes between success and failure, um, is is minute you know in there but what you're learning from the successful projects as well as the ones that maybe don't go as well all contributes to to getting towards that that end result or where you want to go without just focusing keeping your eye on the on the proverbial prize but but as you said the the larger bigger picture you know involved that's there no that's
0: right it's like when you're a parent you say to your kid do you turn to your kid and say i want you to be the best in the class or do you turn to the kid and say, I want you to do your best in the class.
1: Yep. Little, little, different, little differences kind of in how you say it, but make maximum impact uh, in, in how you approach a class or, or a business or, or anything you're you're doing there. And I think you're right. It transcends whatever industry you're in. Um, there's a brass ring, I guess, in all of them that people might be going after. Um, but stop and, and take a look at, at the big picture and how you're going about getting there.
0: Uh, right. That's right. I would, and I would add one more layer to this, which is actually being passionate about whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, songwriting and music, is it, it is more glamorous than other businesses on the face value of it in the celebrity culture we live in. But I actually think that step one to the hit life is being passionate about whatever you're doing, whether you're a farmer or a trader or a teacher. I think... That, I, I don't think you can have the hit life. I don't think you can have that full, the richness, the, that full experience if you're, if you're not passionate about what you do hours and hours and hours every day, you know, month on month, year on year of your life in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm. A- agree, and as we touched on a little bit, it's not so much what you do, but but how you go about doing it in in there. Uh, and whatever you're passionate about, and whatever you've chosen to do uh, for those those reasons, you're going to work towards getting the most fulfilling uh, fulfilling aspects of it as as you possibly can in there. Yeah. Uh, so when you were heading kind of you're, you're heading in the musical direction, your your career as a musician yourself. I mean, you didn't reach reach the levels you had originally thought they were going to get to with with your own albums and things but but then you've taken it to a whole another level as a songwriter and producer and executive how did that trans? how did you make again that that transition
0: yeah. funny i uh somebody asked me in a recent interview i did for philadelphia Inquirer about this question and i said the best thing that ever happened to me was not succeeding as an artist Um, and I would argue, as would anybody who is musical, that, you know, being an artist doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're on the cover of a magazine, you can be an artist behind the scenes, but the idea of being out front and center in that way, uh, as a person that you walk into uh, a restaurant or in a public place and everybody turns and looks at you and, you know, you have that spotlight on you all the time had infinitely less appeal to me um, even just in the earlier part of my career I really I, I'm i so grateful that it didn't work out but what it gave me was an insight and an education as to how record companies work how the business works, the amount of work that goes into it um, what happens when in the same way somebody is working at some job but it's not their natural skill Just how powerful it is when you do find your natural ability in addition to your passion for something and what I had passion for was music and writing and 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 all of the every facet of it um and more of a passion for that than going out and and wanting to be the center of attention uh so I'd say that was step one was not just recognizing it inside myself, but actually raising my hand and saying, "This is not something that I'm going to prioritize right now in my life." I love music and I love writing for other artists, but the experience that I got, and I was very cognizant of building relationships with people um, along the way. It really it helped me. It helped me to be more thoughtful as a songwriter about projects that I. Might be working for, aware of all of the components that go into breaking an artist, um, and frankly, just the humility of understanding how competitive it is out there and at radio, and um, and the, it was it was just a healthy transition for me. I was always writing songs for other artists, um, somewhere in the back of my mind, but when I was focused on my artist career, I became precious and territorial about these songs, if someone said, oh, this would be a great song for whatever group, but I'd say, no, that song is for me, and I would be very, and that's something that happens with a lot of artists, Um, but I realized that if I believed at the time that the well, the creative well of mine was unlimited, that I was not going to run dry, then I shouldn't be precious about it, and I began to let go and to share songs with other artists and other people, and that really spiraled in a positive direction towards um, an abundance of opportunities writing uh, for other artists, and that eventually over time led to me producing um, those artists as well.
1: When you make that transition yourself and you come to that realization that, okay, I'm going to go from the artist direction into the song writing, producing, giving the executive direction, it's one thing for you to come – to that kind of cl- have that clarity and say I'm gonna go there how how about those that you had surrounded yourself with um, were you looked upon differently did people around you react differently to, to the direction that, that you were then going
0: um, you know I've never thought about that I think look on a purely business level the people that invested in me and my artist career were die hard supporters of my artist career and they not just investing financially in me but investing emotionally in into be, me seeing through that journey and whether that was the the then chairman of A and M Records, a guy called Al Kafaro who I'm still very close with, you know, all the way through to the musicians that I toured with, there was definitely um, a bit of a okay, you know, why is he not going to do this anymore? And some of it could have been, you know, that's how they made their living, Uh, not the chairman of the company, but, you know, on some level, and some of it was, um, why is he giving up? He shouldn't give up. You know, it it can still happen for him kind of thing. But I think that, by and large, I never turned to people and said, you know, I'm leaving music and I'm going into, um, you know, widget sales. I just... Said I want to pivot my career. I love music. I want to keep doing stuff. You're important to me, but um, it's more important to me to to have this full music experience. And I also, honestly, I wanted a family life. I wanted to. I, I wanted to. I, I you know I have my wife Jenna, as you know. I wanted to. I wanted that fullness too, and I think that's also another another trap that that is set for for just speaking, you know, from a, a male, a typical male perspective, um, is that that it's almost like not cool to prioritize aspiring to have a family and a personal life, when in fact I think it's actually, it, it makes me even more powerful um, as a person and more balanced in the decisions I make every day. But, it, it you know, it, again, it may not appear as sexy on the box, but in terms of the contents of it, it's it's infinitely richer, in my opinion.
1: It ab- absolutely could not could not agree with you more there, and and certainly one of the reasons we try to go out and talk to people like yourself is is to put that out there. You know the how how are guys really doing it? You know how do you balance it, and how do you prioritize, um, and what is. What is cool or not cool, and does that even ma- does that matter perception perception wise? But as you said, what's important, you know, being with your family, making time for that, still being able to have a career. I think a lot of guys, uh, in particular, wrestle with trying to have it all, you know, or trying to do it all, or right. or what comes comes first. Particularly, and I grew up on the East Coast and now down down in Houston, very very different, you know, in in both in both cities. Um, that that we see and i think look where where i want to push it if i can push it more is hey you know you can be a lot of different things you know you can run multiple businesses i guess you can you can write songs and be a tremendous dad and also be a philanthropist and guys we can do a lot of things without having to make necessarily a lot of sacrifices in any side uh, in in there
0: well some of it i think is how we define what all is when you say have it all when, mm-hmm. when we think about have it all and I think all in and of itself is is a it's a trap that we set for ourselves because yeah. all as measured on the surface is the you know the family and money and power and status and all of these things um, and I don't think that and a lot of it is very tied into where people fit in this um, a caste system that is in many respects set for us by uh, how we ingest everything in the media, everything celebrity, um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's toxic. That trap is toxic. Um, the, again, the hit life for me is really about looking for a deeper sense of what being rich is
1: because mm-hmm. if being rich is just
0: having money like I look I'm of the firm belief that if a person is wildly motivated to make money they'll make it they yep. will have the money if they're if they're that focused on money they'll get money they may not get anything else <laughs> right. but they'll get money I mean if a person is that focused on if someone wakes up and they say i 'm focused and I want a six-pack abs. Like, if you're disciplined, you'll get it. Like, mm-hmm. come hell or high water, it may take time. But if that's your only focus... Now, you may not be able to speak socially in complete sentences with other people by the time you're done. But Or you may take extremes to achieve that, depending on who you are. But when you get there, it's, it, it that, that doesn't change the fundamental quest towards feeling more complete. If you look at somebody who is... You know, let's say somebody is, has gone through a, a struggle with their weight their their whole lives, and there's that um, The Rock. You know, D- Dwayne Johnson did yep. that that movie, and I can't remember the name of it, where he plays like a um,
1: oh, like the one a, he did with Kevin Hart. I yeah,
0: an that. undercover mm-hmm. agent or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's like The Rock, but in the past, he's this you know a kid that really struggled with a weight problem, which had extraordinary impacts on him and his self esteem. Even though he he now looks like the rock and he's like a human wall with feet, when he looks in the mirror, he still sees that kid mm-hmm. who has those challenges, those issues, and not just. And it's not just about the weight; it's about his whole psyche. And I think that it's it's a lot hitting the surface is actually a lot more attainable than trying to get beneath the f- surface and being able to look at yourself in whatever. In whatever incarnation, and feel a sense of completeness.
1: Absolutely, as grounded and logical as, as this sounds, did this? Where did a lot of this come from for you? I mean, tell me a little bit about about your family life. Uh, I know you've got um, your your own family now with with your wife and kids. But what was your upbringing like?
0: Um, well, I, my my family life now is a lot more secure and stable than what my upbringing was like my upbringing was um i you know i i i I love both of my parents my mom passed away at the end of last year she was awesome Mm -hmm. um but i grew up in outside of philadelphia until i was about eight years old our house burned down my parents got divorced and we moved into the inner city in philly and philly is a you know i always joke with um with my friends from Philly, it's like it's a great city to be from, but not sure if we would want to live there. Now that said, it's the Philly's a the great place to live, and I, I still have a lot of friends that are down there. But I all I wanted to do was get out of Philly because it was a very um, it was it was a very intense, violent, um, rogue environment, um, mm. and for me, at least as a kid, it was like that. I lived. Um, Really, as a, I would say, you know, they say like a latchkey kid. I was more like a free range, a free range kid. Um, and I remember we moved into the city, and within the first week, I got jumped by five kids for my pizza. Um, and I remember my mom's horror and, frankly, her um, denial that we were like living in a place that it was super violent. Um, and around nine o'clock every night where we lived, which was in Center City in what is a really nice neighborhood now and was decent then. There was nothing but drug dealers and prostitutes come 9 p.m. pretty much every night of the week. So my childhood experience was not just untethered, but it was in an environment where you had to be very street smart, learn how to handle yourself, learn how to handle yourself physically, um... The benefit to growing up in in an environment like that is that I was constantly in diversity, cultural diversity, um, economic diversity, the humility of living in that environment. And that, of course, shaped the fact that one day I thought I'm going to have a family and I'm not going to have my kids in that kind of environment. And now I'm talking to you from um, a, a beautiful view in, you know, With a beautiful lawn and a lake and a forest behind me, Um, and that to me, in whatever size house that I would live in, it was really that was definitely on my direction list
1: Mm was getting
0: out of the city. But that upbringing for me had a huge impact. Both, I think, in retrospect, more positive than negative, but a lot more negative when I was a little kid because you were constantly paranoid, looking over your shoulder. Suspect of, you know, what's around every corner and who's a friend, who's a frenemy, and who's an enemy. Um, but it's a—it was a spectacular training ground for the music business. <laughs> but, but, uh, but that was that was really my childhood.
1: When did you? What what drew you to music, and when did you first decide that music was going to be your career? That was what you were going to be going after.
0: Um. Music was, I mean, I was always into music. I was, I, I always loved it. Um, it was, we had a house there where there was music. Um, both my parents loved music. Um, both my siblings, I'm the youngest of three, loved music. So there was music was always playing. Um, but it was really, I was as the youngest, my sister, um, she sang, and my brother is, who's a very musical guy, plays. Play different instruments and so uh, to not feel left out initially i would if i saw somebody playing an instrument like my brother played multiple instruments and i remember he played the trombone and i thought that was really cool and that's all i wanted to do um and i started with that but guitar really called out to me first mm-hmm. and um i remember uh outside of philadelphia i went and i got guitar lessons from a guy called mike pilla at medley music um and I, I don't know i couldn't have been six years old when i started and um and it just caught on but i think that the the drug the musical drug you know and why it became my go-to was more uh, an outlet for me um just an outlet for me as a person um i i, I had issues in school um fights in school i was switched school to school to school for a couple years when I was younger Um, but music was like a it was a it was a neutral safe friend for me you know sitting in my room and playing guitar Uh, and you know Tom Petty who just passed away Mm -hmm. um, that was a big uh, an influence on me because at the time um, this is back in the stone ages before the internet but there was terrestrial radio, and I and I had a cassette player that was built into the same unit that was my record player and radio unit, and I would just record songs that I liked on, on WMMR, which was the station, and then I would spend hours in my room rewinding and playing and rewinding again and playing and trying to teach myself Tom Petty records. Um, so, uh, you know what, it was, I'm grateful for it because, music kept me from being someone i didn't get into drugs i didn't get into gangs or any violence like that i was really i got focused and and it was a safe place
1: take me through your um your your songwriting process a little bit and i'm also particularly interested in in kind of when you write or how you write on your own but also you're you're really also known as as a collaborator too with some with some amazing artists Um, what, what's your process, both on, on your own and also when, when you do collaborate? It depends on the project.
0: Uh, I mean, I started as a solo artist, and I wrote all my own songs. And as I had mentioned earlier, I was really precious about that. I didn't want to co-write with anybody. The songs for me were from me, for me. And I was really pretty indignant about anybody that <laughs> would turn to me and say different, which I realized very quickly that that's a it's a bad approach. Um, it's a bad business approach, it's, but it was a bad approach to me um, for me to, to, to advance. Um, but I think different artists and different genres have required a different approach, and it really depends. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking back now over over 25 years of songwriting, and each experience is different. Sometimes you sit down in a room, I mean... Ingrid Michaelson and I sat down, and um, in, in my guest house studio, um, we're strumming guitars. We come up with an idea for a song, and it's done. Just uh, we have um, a cool riff and a kick drum, just thumping along, and we're just strumming and singing together, and writing down words and going through it. And then that song—this um, is just something I did this year. Like that song wound up being. Recorded by um, an artist called Helena Fischer, which by the way no American listener would know but she is one of the biggest stars in Germany Switzerland Austria and sold a million records in a month which is like more than you know the biggest American stars sell um, and the song was converted into a German lyric so all of a sudden Ingrid and I had like other collaborators who had to take the lyrics and convert them into German. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really from the very traditional, you sit down with some guitars and you sing and write. And then sometimes, you know, I've worked on um, records where people come in, and sometimes, um, in working with Pink, sometimes we do it just like that. We sit down, I'm at the piano or guitar, and we'll just, I'll just start noodling around, and then, you know, you try to turn on the creative faucet, and it just comes out. Um, and then sometimes with her, I'll come in with a track that's basically like a production that is a complete, uh, not, not, not always complete, but tends to be the more of a complete structure. And then see if we vibe and try to write what in songwriting is called top line writing, which is just m- lyric and melody over a pre-existing mm-hmm. track, which is very prevalent now in the music industry. Um, and that's another approach. So I think it depends. And genre to genre, it also depends because a lot of people are um, collaborating remotely. You know, someone works on something, then they send an MP3 to somebody in another country or another city, and then they work on it and send it back.
1: So you mentioned, uh, you just mentioned Pink. Um, Ironically, today, um, I got an email um, about tickets going on sale for the beautiful Trauma Tour coming to Houston, uh, April 28th. Um, You've had a very successful successful collaboration with with Pink. Tell me a little bit about about that relationship. Um it was certainly kind of cool to get the email today knowing I was going to be talking to you later saying okay, uh maybe we'll see you here in in April of 2018, but an amazing artist, like truly amazing artist.
0: Yeah, she's she's awesome. I mean, she's from Philly and and uh, uh we I, I mean, I've been working with her since 2003, which is uh 2 or 3, which is very unusual in the music industry for, um, for artists and writers to work for that long together it's, it's, I don't want to say it's unheard of but it's very rare so um, she's a cherished friend first of all but uh, we met initially I want to say and this was really from my artist career um, her management team was aware of my first album um, which I, my joke was, oh, so you're the one who heard it, but, um, but, but, uh, knew that I was from Philly. And at the time, um, she had, she'd been working with Linda Perry, um, and she was working with Tim Armstrong. And this is on the Try This record, which most of it was done. But they got us together and it took, like, a few weeks for it to all come together But when we did, we met in the Valley in L.A. um, around noon or something. And um, within 20 minutes of sitting down and talking together, we just got on like a house on fire. And, you know, we were like ordering whiskey and talking about Philly. And she's just, we've always had that chemistry. And what I'm most proud of as her friend, not just as someone that's been making records with her for a long time, is that she has the hit life. She really, and she worked incredibly hard for it. And what you see and what you hear and what you see her in interviews or on stage, that is who she is. And the authenticity around her is, I think, what gets people so revved up and, and enthusiastic and passionate about her career. is because she says it like it is. She is who she is. And we just, I don't know, we've been doing it a long time. She's been a great friend to me. Um, she is a great philanthropist she 's a very devoted mother and 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 wife um, and she's uh, she 's just an awesome person. I mean you hear about this stuff when someone says oh someone 's so great and blah blah, blah. it 's like anything that you want to know about her at least you know in terms of is there depth there she 's been open about she 's been mm-hmm. open about um, her views on women she 's been open about the challenges in her marriage she 's been open about um, her political views um, and that transparency I think she 's authentic, so um, in many respects there 's not a lot about her on the you know on that macro level that you don 't already know, except I can just validate it and tell you that she is absolutely a hundred fucking percent real
1: and is that where you you have to go that type of transparency, that type of vulnerability, that willingness to be open for for yourself as well for for this process also really, really to work. Um, you know, think about even what questions do I want to ask? What questions do I feel like I would be holding back on? How do you get to the place where, okay, you're comfortable enough with just opening it all up and putting it all, all out there? I think that, that makes such a huge difference because I could hear it in your voice and it's so touching and emotional to get to that space of, of a relationship. Well,
0: I mean, I would say any healthy relationship is going to have that kind of transparency. You want a great marriage. You want a great business partnership. You want great friends. If you're faking any of it, then you're never going to know that it's how real it is or how real it can be or how not real it is. And I, I think people, it's listen, it's scary for anybody to be transparent. I mean, anybody who's listening to your show uh, certainly struggles with, the three tiers of their lives, which is their, you know, the, your um, your outward persona, your public life, and then you have your personal life, and then you have your secret life. And I think nine times out of ten, that's how people function, just like the person that's out at, uh, at parties, hey, how's it going, or at work, and then their personal life, and then their secret life. I think to, to be able to accomplish uh, a through line, and that for, for real consistency, through that, those three levels. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to tell your secret life to someone that you just met, but it means that I think that the, the level of um, integrity is commensurate with the level of intimacy with the people that you engage with. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. So you you mentor a lot of musicians, producers, songwriters. Who were also some of, some of your mentors?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, I think, um, I mean, for starters, I would say to someone who doesn't have a mentor, um, reading a lot of books is really helpful. Um, I've found so much wisdom in, in being uh, an, a, a, a voracious reader. Um, if I can't read, I get audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, for when I'm exercising or driving or traveling.
1: What do you read um, now, if I can ask?
0: Um, I just read uh, David Asprey's book um, on Bulletproof, the Bulletproof oh, diet, yeah. Bul- the
1: Bulletproof... Yep. Uh, He's terrific. I, I start my day with a Bulletproof coffee.
0: Well, yes. you and me both. <laughs> yes. You and me both. So I, I just finished his book, um, and I just got headstrong, his other book. I'm going to read that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I would say... For mentors for me, um, there's a guy in the music business named David Simoni, um, who uh, I've known for a long time in my career. Um, he's a manager. He was the he ran PolyGram um, Publishing. He uh, he's worked with I, I don't know over the years. I mean the list is so long. He and his partner Winston. Um, he is someone who. I mean, we are friends, and we've become very dear friends. And this year recently, I officiated the wedding of his son, Benjamin, who's also my agent at William Morris' (laughs) section. But but David and Benjamin, who I've known since he was, I guess, a teenager. But at the earliest stages of my career, when I was coming up as a songwriter, David was super supportive, and through every... Every pivot in my career, from songwriting to producing to managing to selling my company to running uh, EMI's International Music, um, he he never looked at me with the kind of with any Schadenfreude. He never rooted against me. There was never any salt. Um, it was just somebody that was secure enough that he supported and said, "Good for you. Give him hell." Um, and we've stayed friends, and he's somebody that I, that I can go to and say, "Hey, I'm in this situation, and what do you think?" And he's he's definitely one of them.
1: There was a a night in in 2010 that I had I'd read about also in in, in doing a little research for this. Um, where was the Grammys? And Pink had perform was performing "Glitter in the Air" um, mm-hmm. in there, and you had talked about this being being one of the best. One of the best nights, a career highlight for you. Um, what have been you know that as well as maybe some other some some of your biggest career highlights, standout moments?
0: Um. I mean, I know this is going to sound unbelievable, um, but today, today is a career highlight. I get to wake up in the morning and do what I love to do passionately every day and. To feed my family, my, you know, my wife, my kids, and myself, and to have abundance. I know it sounds corny, but I actually, I feel like every day I get to do it is a highlight day for me. I don't say that to minimize those big moments. Like that one night was particularly uh, meaningful, but I, when I look through in the aggregate, it's the ability to continue. And this is like a quote that Grover Washington Jr. said to me when I was a teenager. And he sat me down and said, I'm going to tell you the secret of success in the music business. And I was, you know, really excited to hear about all the glamorous shit that was ahead of me, you know, like... I mean, when you're a teenager and you're a teenage boy, you know, all you think about is, like, girls and, you know, money and um, just real surface stuff. And he said to me, success is the ability to continue. And I didn't... I remember being like oh you know it's not really it's like not super exciting but i remember there was a moment where i got it and i think that that's, that the highlight is a constantly everyday blood flowing experience is that i get to continue to do this for decades is that is the only highlight i need in when i really look at it
1: do you have a particular favorite song that that you've been a part of or, or is that also kind of like asking you what who your favorite child is yeah, yeah.
0: No, no I mean don't get me wrong look I, th- just I mean I, after I just told you about there are definitely like highlights mm-hmm. and songs that really are moving to me some of them are the ones that help me get out of just you know just elevate my career to the next level um, but I would say you know one of the projects that I've that really moved the needle for me was actually a record I did with Art Garfunkel
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, in 2001. And well, for starters, I'm like a, I'm a total music file. So like I'm you know I've worked with Carol King, I've worked with uh, and I'm close with Carly Simon. I, I'm working with Art Garfunkel. I work with Hall and Oates, and working with like they're my heroes. And to work with or with Sting, like those are the legends of my life and a lot of today's artists and, and songwriters and producers, they really, that's like a, it's like a foreign world to them. And to me, I was so lucky that I was old enough and they, and those artists were young enough that I was able to um, bridge generations in terms of my musical experience. And arts manager at the time, a uh, guy called John Cher, who's a really great, super passionate promoter mm-hmm. um, and manager. And, Um, he reached out to me and said, you know, Artie writes poetry and he's, you know, he's very, I mean, he's intellectually brilliant. And he, he also clearly marches to his own thing. What could you do with his poems? What could you do? And I remember meeting Artie and walking, um, into his place off of Central Park. And it was literally like, you know, um. Is one of the great voices of, of, of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and um, and cap, really being the captain of that project, which is um, I wanted to take myself out of the role of being the songwriter and really focus on how do I create something around Artie that would be interesting, elevate him, meaningful, uh, and relevant, but still honor the history of his whole career with paul simon and <laughs> both strategically to preserve my own place in the world i wasn't going to become like i'm the songwriter muse with Artie for Artie's voice because no one will ever be able to unseat paul simon ever <laughs> um, so i took myself out and i actually um, reached out to two songwriters singer-songwriters who are really wonderful uh, buddy Monlock who uh, is a brilliant guy um, and Maya Sharp, an amazing woman, both incredible musicians. And I had this concept of this trio project, and we made a record called Everything Waits to Be Noticed. And the first day of actual tracking in Nashville was nine eleven, mm. and it was it got huge critical acclaim. The record it, w- it was never a big seller, and I wrote a bunch of songs on the record, but Artie wrote um, a good chunk of the record and. It really, that whole project and the the time that it took and the years it took to do it, and I got to work with uh, just really exceptional people. I mean, if you're a nerdy musician person like me, then you would, you know, like George Massenburg mixed the record. He's like, the, he is literally the founder of Parametric EQ in, in <laughs> recording. Um, it was just, it was a very, it was a, it was a very meaningful project. And art actually has gone on to become a very dear friend, sang at my wedding. Um, Just, uh, I don't know, something about that project was very much a turning point for me because it wasn't wasn't just me, oh, I'm a songwriter. It was me as a producer, an executive producer, as a, you know, basically mentoring someone who is a legend and having to trust my own instincts enough to say, you know, just go for it. And and it, it was a, it's a beautiful project. I, I'd say to anybody that likes Simon and Garfunkel-era music, it's, the album's called Everything Waits to be Noticed.
1: Can we touch a little bit, and you have a, a beautiful family, which we started talking about a little bit at, at the beginning, and I've seen pictures of, of your son playing music, and and you have four. Um, you also, your, your oldest um, has autism. Right? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about... Um, your your involvement with with philanthropy, being on the board of Autism Speaks, the ex, the experience um, there that you and your family um, go through, and and your your obviously your passion for your family, which is which is radiant and comes across uh, in everything you say. Talk talk a little bit about that. Um, well,
0: I there's I mean, first of all, there's you know there's three Things that come to mind when I think about it. One is my wife, um, and I got very lucky. Um, I, uh, when I was in my early twenties, I fell in love with a girl um, named Rema Hort, who, uh, you know, it's I was really young to fall in love with uh, uh, with a girl, um, but I really fell in love with her, and um, and she and I got engaged. And she um, was diagnosed with stomach cancer really young, and um, we got married. And she died nine months after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was uh, needless to say a really humbling experience. Not something that I could have expected. I was about twenty five at the moment, and at that moment, and I was I had thought I had like had the world um, by the balls. I mean, in many respects, this is sort of the um, harsh indoctr- indoctrinization into the hit life process for me because mm-hmm. everything every milestone that I had thought would bring me happiness basically just crumbled around me you know I wanted to fall in love and I wanted to get a record deal and I wanted to my artist thing and basically it all just sort of fell away so the, the harsh reality of that was very difficult for me um, and you start thinking things, especially when you're a young person, and it's like you're going 150 miles an hour, um, when all of a sudden there's like a wall that drops in front of you and you crash into it, the recovery is really tough. Mm-hmm. And when I met my wife, Jenna, um, Jenna actually knew Rima, who, I, who my wife had passed away. Um, not well, but... Her sister was actually Jenna's older sister. Was actually at my wedding to Rima those those years ago, and um, and Jenna and I met not under the you know any sort of fix up, um, but we just met. I needed photos for something. She was the photo editor of Elle magazine. Um, I was traveling a lot, and when I met Jenna, it was I just met. I just liked her. You know, it wasn't. And that whole, the whole like meet someone and see fireworks experience that I had experienced before, not only did I would I not look for it, but I I, I was, but it, it wouldn't be something that I would run to anyway because I I didn't have the emotional capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And Jen and I dated for years before, and she'll tell anybody who will listen that it's like years because her friends and family were basically tapping their feet, like, really, you're going to waste your time with this, you know, broken musician guy? (laughs) Um, But but she was home for me, and I think the amount of time it took for our relationship to marinate in part is why we are such a great family and why she and I are such a great team in facing autism with my son and also just having a lot of kids and, and living a pretty amazing but very full life experience. And when we did get married years later, the wedding was fantastic. I sort of mentioned that Artie was already saying at the wedding. Mm. But it was really for me uh, you know, I talk about life highlights, it was really a highlight for me because it was a taking back of happiness for myself and and my future. And I really I got I, I really married like an amazing woman. And that is luck. I mean, I'll tell you now. To anybody listening to this, it's like people can say, "What's the secret to marriage?" A big chunk of it, get lucky. Um, choose wisely. Take your time. Meet the in-laws before you marry the person, and get lucky.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I definitely, uh, uh I, I agree with that. And 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 got and got lucky. And I thank you for for sharing that. I think that you know the those moments. Um, you know, as I listen to you tell it, and you know, I lost. For me, I lost my father to cancer when I was 17, mm-hmm. uh, graduating high school, heading, getting ready to head away to college. Um, and similarly, at the time, kind of was running, you know, a thousand miles an hour. Everything was going fantastic, and, and, and it stopped. You know, it changed, it changed everything. Um, yeah. In, yeah in
0: there. It does. I mean, I think, you know, just to get back to your question, um, when my son Jasper was diagnosed, with autism, and this is, he's 15 now, so this is 12 and a half years ago, Um, there wasn't as much known, it wasn't as, uh, there wasn't the awareness level that there is now, Um, and it was, you know, it was very, uh, for any parent that has a child that faces not just autism, but any sort of uh, disability um, and walks down that unknown path, it is it's 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 terrifying it's a super scary experience and um and it was but uh, it was a humbling experience and it took me time to figure out myself in it as a man and and as a dad it wasn't like oh my son has autism and now I'm going to become a philanthropist and go to the white house it was like <laughs> i didn't want anything to do with uh, with anything other than trying to help be supportive of him um, and be there for for Jenna and then um, and actually I actually got a call from someone who I'd been working with on a project at the time who said you know don't tell anybody that your kid has autism because you know you could you know people may not hire you and you're like on a roll so you may want to like not mention it and uh, separate from that's like a horrible thing to say to somebody Mm -hmm. um, during a vulnerable moment uh, it definitely scared me and because um, it 's my livelihood and now I have the responsibility of um, extra uh, services for my kid um, but that really took it, it took us on a, a it 's an unexpected path um for us and even for my daughters and my my sons you know my kids are born into a a, a, a an, an uncharted path to love um, either because their sibling has um, a disability that they need to learn to navigate um, or because um, we've got a lot of kids. We have four kids now. (laughs) But um, I think what autism did for me in a positive sense is that it provided a filter for bullshit. It provided... Um, a very clear, fast ability to sniff out when something was important and when something wasn't important. And it's not that I needed that because, as I just shared with you, I mean, I I went through what really was just like a horrific loss um, already. But what this did is that it was a constant filter that made, frankly, decision-making easier for me, Um, what I'm going to prioritize, who I'm going to prioritize, that all really came into focus quickly. Um, and then eventually I met Suzanne and Bob Wright, who founded Autism Speaks, mm-hmm. and um, and they knew I was sheepish about getting more involved, but at the same time I was having a lot of traction writing successful songs and making records for a lot of successful artists. I think they saw the opportunity in someone that could be, uh, you know, um, at a higher altitude to get attention to autism speaks and to mm. autism as an issue, and for me it became a really uh, a cathartic process and, and a, a kind of therapy to stay humble and remember that this isn't just happening to me and my family, which frankly we're privileged enough to be able to um, to provide a lot of the services for my son from just in a way that ninety percent or more families in America or around the world don't either don't have access to the services or don't have the resources uh, financially or otherwise to, to, to access them and that really inspired me to do something and get more involved and that threw me into the political arena and relationships with um, political leaders and and it it, um, it it was a way for me to channel the experience that we had at home in a way hopefully to shine a light on on, on autism for all different kinds of families. Great.
1: Bill, is there a question or something that you wish, you know, in all the interviews you do and people you talk to, is there something you wish someone would ask you that you, you never get asked that you wonder, well, why doesn't anybody ever ask me that? You know?
0: um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that the question that I hope that people think about when they listen to an interview or when they talk to people. Is really is this person happy are they are they happy are they speaking from a place that uh, like a, uh, um a place of contentment which shouldn't be confused with you know complacency or mm-hmm. laziness but really how how credible is what they are saying to the people listening and uh, for me it's not that I've ever been asked that question, but I always think to myself when I listen to interviews, does someone say, ask directly, are you happy? And what is that answer?
1: Yep, it's, it's great. And and now I really appreciate you saying that. One of the reasons I do this and enjoy doing this so much as, as a passion is getting to talk to a wide variety of, of really interesting and diverse individuals about just that. What I'm, what I'm interested in is... Are are you happy? I, you know, how do you become happy? What are people looking for? You know, in there, in the in the balance of it all, um, and happiness trumps trumps all of it. Um, mm. I think.
0: I no, want- I think. Listen, you. I think you're. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. Um, and we all, every person out there, faces pushback. I mean, if you're living and actually doing something, and you're creating or you're putting yourself out there it's like i always say to songwriters and artists there's only two steps to to music step 1 create step 2 be judged <laughs> it's it's harsh mm-hmm. you, you know songwriters and producers artists they can spend an artist can paint on a canvas for 3 weeks and then they can show it to someone and they can shrug their shoulders and go that's eh, okay <laughs> it's like it's like being judged is um Certainly, the toughest side for everybody. And by the way, we live in this media world where the jury all has a uh, a, a microphone on Facebook or Twitter or mm-hmm. social media, and they can say whatever they want. Um, they can say so and so is a fraud, or he stole that art from so and so, or that person's a bad person, or so and so is a crook, or they can say it, and they with impunity in many cases. Um, and that is a new element to all of this, is that this new um, social media judgment. And I think that um, it's also, it, it, listen, it it's permeates every element of our lives now. Um, whatever side somebody is politically, um, the President of the United States is communicating, for better or worse, in my view, for worse, <laughs> on sensitive policy issues, uh, with a limited number of characters. Right. Uh, that is a, that, that's, I think that's scary to anybody. It would be like trying to encapsulate something from the Bible in fewer characters than was expressed by whatever God you believe in. Mm. It's just... It's, it, you know, so I think that part of being happy, part of being um, a grown-up, being a man, being happy in your own skin, is accepting... The fact that somebody out there isn't going to agree, they're not going to like it, they're going to think that you're not great, and whether you're an artist or you work at a company, they're going to do it. They can be anonymous, they can be on Yelp, they can be they can be at a party, but knowing yourself and being comfortable in your own skin, honestly, you want to know the best thing about autism for, for me, mm-hmm. is knowing that my child with autism doesn't think about the acceptance or envy or jealousy, those facets of uh, those more toxic um, um, life experience uh, um, additives are not anywhere in his being. And the freedom that he has in that, with a lot of other challenges that go with it, but the freedom he has in that process, I, I think, it is... I envy. I really do. We go out to a restaurant and he makes noises and people stare and say, control your kid or they, whatever. It's like, I care about that, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he does. I shouldn't say that. It's very possible that he, he may care, but he can't care because it's who he is.
1: Right. Billy man. Really, really amazing stuff. I truly am grateful and appreciative of all of your time today. Um, I could listen to you for hours longer <laughs> Brother. And, and do two, three, four parts on this because it is really um, it 's really moving stuff, great stuff and and super. Super deep. So thank you so much for giving me your time. Uh, thank Jennifer for, for connecting us to put this all together and best with everything to your family and your career and thank you, and thank you my my friend, for doing this. I really appreciate it.
0: No, it's a pleasure and if, for your listeners, they can find me on Twitter at Billy Mann, Um two N's, um, and uh, they can check out the Hit Life. There's a Facebook page and I need to refresh it, but... Um, and there was a speech that I uh, gave years ago for CSAC, which is a songwriters' organization called The Hit Life, um, and it's you know it was it's a lot in the in the themes that we're talking about. But um, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for having me on the show.
1: Thank you, guys. Billy Mann, The Hit Life, everybody, check it out. Billy Mann, thank you again. <laughs>
0: The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit Innsgroup.net.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time.